Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Anne. I'm Lemuel. No. Yes, we're interrupting for a similitude. A very similitude. Because in this film, people interrupt each other constantly, constantly, all the time. They're talking over each other. Well, we'd also like to make a pleasant audio experience for I'm our listeners. Carl Bernstein. I get to be Bob Woodward. <laughs> yes. Nice. <laughs> so we watched all the President's Men this week. <laughs> And we'll be talking about it shortly, but before we do, how was your week? Um, my week was very busy, but very productive at the same time. Excellent. And yours? Uh, it was good. I'm just trying to get to the end of this thing so that I can close it and right. be done. Changing jobs is fun. Training your replacements is not. I mean, it's fine. It's good. Everything's fine. But you have more relaxed space. Generally, when I change a job, it's because someone tells me to get out. Yeah, or no, I told my, I told them I need to get out, okay. so I'm getting out. That's it. Okay. My life is boring. We saw Ready Player One this weekend. We did. Uh, it was for my birthday, ostensibly. One uh, of the things that, one of the uh, variety of birthday things we'll be doing for Amity. That's good, because it wasn't great. No, this will not, no, this would be very disappointing if this was your one birthday gift. So, it was a big deal that he went to a Spielberg movie It was with a me. very big deal. But, um, yeah. I got to see Mecha Godzilla. That was... Yeah, there you go. There we go. That's and my And the movie wasn't bad, but I felt like... And I finally kind of summed it up today in right. a conversation I was no, having. No, you've read the book, which is why... I read the book. There's more room for disappointment. I read the book, and I understand that um, people do have problems with the book, but I loved it because I read it. You know, it very is a very fast read if you're a quick reader, and it's brimming with nostalgia from the stuff that I liked when I was a kid, and I enjoyed that. Some people are like, nostalgia is not art. Well, that's fine. Then it's not art, but it's fun, and it's entertaining, and it's escapism, and I'm fine with all of those things. Not escapism, but escapism. escapism. <laughs> That's cultural appropriation, by the way. But this movie reminded me of the problems with the movie Rock of Ages, which is it's a movie that is made for one group of people with content for a different group of people, and so the movie is for no one. This movie was made by Steven Spielberg to target 13 to 17-year-olds. Like, that's the... Uh, primary audience that they're targeting, but the nostalgia piece of it is for people who are 35 to 45. So why are you making a children's movie full of nostalgia for people who are not children? Right. Having seen Ready Player One, I can say that it has all the flaws of a Steven Spielberg movie, which is a very kind of saccharine world where there's not a great deal of grit or violence is never real even when it's portraying scenes of real violence in the real world. Mm. Um, the things I liked about it... Also, I felt the pace was far too frantic at times. Yeah. Um, some of the video games that people enter in, I don't understand how anyone would enjoy playing them because they're just ultra-violent well, and destructive. I don't hate that. But <laughs> um, Depending on my mood. The fun thing for me was seeing Mechagodzilla or... Uh, Harryhausen's Cyclops, or one of the crashed war machines from George Pal's War of the Worlds. Right. Again, those are things that I appreciate, but those aren't even my generation. That's a whole generation younger than me. 
Yeah. These are people who saw these things on television and mm-hmm. maybe didn't see them on television. So And then thirteen to seventeen right. year olds are gonna have very little Yes, it won't matter to those. But so. to give you an example of why where I think it failed, and this is something I described to you after seeing it, um, all these characters are pretty much seen in a big battle scene near the end of the film. Yeah. And there's so well, much 1. going 4 on. Four seconds each. Right. So much is going on at the end of the film that I can't imagine on anything other than a theater screen you could pick out all these characters and references. And so for a minute, yes, it's really cute watching Batman and Spawn and Catwoman and Freddy Krueger and all these other characters leaping off the screen and fighting either side by side or with the Ninja Turtles or something. But the problem is it all goes by so fast and in such a wide kind of panoramic view that you, I can't imagine watching this on a television screen. Yeah, no. Will be an experience that will be in any way as much fun. Not, it, it felt very much a, like, later Dane Cook comedy where he'll just say a thing. Right. Like, he'll just say speak and spell. That's not a joke. But everybody laughs because it's a thing I know. Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not, like, you're not doing anything with it. You know what I, my favorite part of it was, what? I think, probably, was the iRock character design. I really thought that that was a cool piece of character design. But uh, it's fine. Like I said, it's serviceable. I don't think Steven Spielberg makes bad movies. We might disagree on that. I think Mm -hmm. he is a person who makes serviceable films. And it's a serviceable film. So, And he can make good movies. I'm sure he can. Yes. Yes, my complaint goes much deeper than that, and you don't have all night. Yes, no, but, it's fine. We're not going to do all. Yes, it was it it was an agreeable way of spending time. I think. Yeah, it was fine. It I was, like the it cast. I like Olivia Cook. Yes, Olivia Cook is wonderful. Is, I like right. her very much. She wasn't a great. I mean, she was the right casting for what they were doing in this movie. Right. She's not the right casting for the character in the book, but you know what are you going to do? Right, exactly. So, oh, uh, Lena Waithe was in it as well, and I really, really like her. So I like seeing her in anything. Uh, can't complain about that. And everything, and you know, it's fine. Like I said, it's fine. And that sounds like a dig, but it wasn't. It was a. F- and I also feel like in a week, I'm going to be like, oh, did I watch that? Because it doesn't feel. It's sticky. a dig at a movie that has gotten this much hype. And I think what when a producer is trying to make a movie so memorable that it'll stay with you, it's okay is not what they want to hear. Yeah, but they also, I mean, in a lot of the groups that I am a f- member of online, uh, no one thought that this was going to be successful. And people were surprised at how successful it ended up being, mm-hmm. it turns out. So like I said, I wasn't expecting it to be a horrible film because it's, a Steven Spielberg film. Right. Like, he's not, he's like by definition not a bad director. In in the very least, you will get a very competently made film. Precisely. Yeah. And it was a nice way to spend the afternoon. It's right. fine. I, we saw it on, on a Sunday morning. Uh-huh. Uh, it was an 11.10 showing. We got out and had lunch. It was right. great. It was fine. <laughs> you know, it's, like I said, it's fine. Fine. You want to get to the... Topic of this week. Topic of this week, yes. So we decided Mm -hmm. to continue our trek through the 70s with the 1976 film All the President's Men. Well, not all. you don't see All the President's Men. You see some of them. 
Yes. Others are in the shadows in parking garages. That's true. Um, and he's really not one of the president's men, or he wouldn't be in the shadows in the parking garage. Uh, this is a movie that came out ninth, uh, the 9th of April, 1976. So happy almost birthday. Uh, it's currently playing in San Francisco <laughs> tonight at 7.30. As, uh, yeah, right. At the, new, at the new parkway, uh, or the, uh, no, the Alamo Draft House, I think. So maybe for a birthday situation, maybe as a, a look at how similar some stuff is to then. That was the thing that came up as we were watching it. I was like, there are also teacher strikes happening. Mm, everything is too familiar. The situation, the paranoid president who wants to silence the media, the uh, interference by politicians who want to, who are part of a conservative backlash. There's, was, uh, there's actual fake news happening. Right. Like, it, but seeing the denials and the attacks on the, the Washington Post during the course of the film that are, are shown in newsreel footage, it felt really eerily similar to the, the point to of being going on right slightly now. disturbing. Yeah. And um, you know, actually more compelling. I almost felt like I was watching something as it was happening rather than something that had happened that so long ago. Now, this is not a Best Picture winner. Um, it was up against Rocky and Lost. Um but we both seen Rocky, mm-hmm. so that doesn't fit into the theme of our podcast. So we watched this. I'd never seen it. Now, you've seen this film before, is that correct? I've seen this film many, 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 many years ago. Um, and it was watching it as a film student, part of uh, the producer's uh, series, of what he called the Paranoia Trilogy, um, which were Clute and I think the Parallax View was the other one. I've never seen any of those and three it, films. It's very much, um, it, yeah, uh, Alan Pacula was a remarkable director, producer. He produced uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is one of my favorite movies. Now, his name is Alan Pacula. Right. I never heard of this person before. I know Scott Bacula. <laughs> I did not know Alan Pacula with a P. With a P. And yes, he was a remarkable uh, producer and director. And this is a, he, this film, was a, it's a really good. I this I think this and Rosemary's Baby have a similar feeling of everyone's out to get you and there you don't a, know of. Yeah, there is a sort of trust. ominous um, thing from go. Like yeah. we had to, when we started the film, we had to immediately turn the volume down because the f- opening thing is typewriter keys, right. but. It's not. It's done as though it's gunshots. They're very loud, mm-hmm. and according to, I will be leaning heavily on the IMDb, the IMDb trivia page for this episode. They it was typewriter keys overlaid by gunshots and whiplashes to accentuate the themes of words as weapons. So. That's why it was so jarring, it, and it and really startling. was. I was just like, um, "We need to." I feel like I'm being assaulted. We right. need to turn this down. I might have had some sound sensitivity <laughs> issues there at the beginning, and the rest of the movie is not like that. It is sort of low key creepy. It is not. It never felt like they were in danger, even though they were in danger. I felt at the very end when. Um, and I don't want to get ahead of it, but I'll tell you the scene where I felt that yeah. 
there was a car um there was one of the scenes in the in the parking garage right uh felt a little bit tense to me but for the most part this is a journalism movie this is a lot of robert redford and dustin hoffman on the phone Yes, and there's that. That's that's a lot of it. A lot and, of and and taking notes. The action scenes are a guy on the phone taking notes and really grilling people until they fail, and then he's able to catch them. And 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 them plotting. Right. Well, if we say this and they react that way, then we know this is true. And if we say this and they don't react that way, then we know this is true. It's like playing mastermind. I don't know right. if you know the game mastermind. That inv- oh, probably not because it involves like colored pegs. And you're like... I thought tr- it was Battleship. No. Oh, okay. The, I don't think the pegs are colored in Battleship. But anyways, it's a logic game that I used to play in Gate. But yeah, it's a lot of... Well, we know you can't say a thing, but if I count to ten and you haven't hung up, then what I'm saying is correct. I mean, it's a lot of this. It's it's, (laughs) sidling up to the truth when you can't. They're trying to find it by means that sometimes are appropriate, sometimes are completely inappropriate. Yeah. But when everyone is trying to hide the truth from you, it becomes a sort of by any means necessary right. game. And the people they lean on or lean into, um, that becomes part of the drama. Yeah. And it's amazing. The cast of this film is ridiculous because at points I'm seeing actors like Jane Alexander and Lindsay Krauss mm-hmm. and later F. Murray Abraham, we learned, just popping up in little tiny bits yeah. in this film. And this is a movie that comes up on the uh, podcast Doug Loves Movies a lot when... They're playing the, not the Leonard Maltin game, Last Man Stanton, and they don't know if some, like, if they're out of movies that this actor might have been in. They'll say all the president's men because so many people were in this movie mm-hmm. that there's a chance that they just appeared in a single scene, like right. F. Murray Abraham. Right. It's completely, <laughs> completely unrecognizable. Pretty much. Yeah. It's because of his silly hat. All right. the 70s. So you wanna, we're going to go through, yeah, we're going to do uh-huh. a very brief plot synopsis, but it feels very much like break in, journalism, 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 right. the end. That's basically well, the plot what synopsis. What you're doing is you're following the clues. Yeah. So the story begins with uh, a security guard finding that a door had, uh, the, the bolt on the lock had been taped over. Right. And this begins him investigating the building. Um, well, I think he just straight up calls the police. Right, he does, but they're investigating and find that there's a group of men who are highly incompetent breaking into this building. They're walking around with flashlights and things, and they seem to have someone that they're calling to in another building. Yeah, they're well, in, in the Watergate across the street, right. because the break-in is at the Watergate complex where the Democratic National Committee has its offices. The person that they're on the walkie-talkie to is across the street at the hotel, the Watergate Hotel, because they can see across and see the lights. That security guard is, in fact, the security guard who actually worked at the Watergate complex and actually called him in. His name was Frank Wills, and he was cast to reprise his real-life role, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. So Also... One of the only black people in this movie. Right, unfortunately. Mm. Although there's, yes, 
As a matter of fact, there's only one other I can think of. <laughs> but um, so in the morning, after the break-in, the story is assigned to Bob Woodward, who is a very novice reporter at the Washington Post. Yeah, he's only been there like 10 months, and I think we hear. He's, so, but he is novice. Right. He is new. And so he is sent to the courthouse to cover the men being assigned a lawyer, and they're assigned what's called a country club lawyer in the business, and this alerts Woodward that something's wrong. Because it's not an assignation. Right. They, the, originally, they were like, oh, yeah, the, you're going to get the, you know. Right. One will be a, a, an attorney. Public will be, defender. Yeah, so no, but the public defenders got the case, but then had the case taken from them. Right, so now these men are being defended by a higher-profile lawyer, and Woodward keeps wanting to find out why, and also why that's being monitored by an even higher-profile lawyer. Right. And he just keeps falling around from courthouse to courthouse, which kind of makes you like him right away, the fact that he's onto something and he won't let go. Yeah, he's dogged, for sure. Right. And the fact that these men later uh, are discovered to have ties to the CIA... Yes. ...really begin to interest him. But again, there's no story there because there's nothing, you know... To prove there. Right. I think the first instigating clue was the idea that they were all Cuban. Three. Three of them were Cuban? Three of the four or uh, four of the five. I can't remember how many. Four of the five men. Right. Uh, were Cuban Americans from Miami. Um, and I, my favorite thing, my favorite thing, one of my, I like this movie very much. One of my favorite things is um, they, so Bob, Woodward is the only one working on this to start with. Um, and he calls the White House, which you can do. There is a just a public line, and asks for somebody, right? He asks for Howard Hunt. Um, and they're like, the, just the switchboard operator at the White House is like, uh, oh, no, he's not here. Have you tried this other place? Mm. Like, these... Switchboard operators are really giving out a lot of business that maybe they don't need to be giving out. Because then he calls this, and he's like, no, do you have a number for them? And he calls this other place. It's, I think that's the Mullen firm, which I believe is a, like a marketing or advertising uh, company. It's unclear. Um, and asks for him again. And once again, the secretary or receptionist who's answering is like, Oh no, he's not here, but you might try this person's office. Which I think is uh Colson. Oh, have you tried Colson's office? Mm-hmm. Who's the special counsel? Right. And but there's no way that Bob Woodward would have tracked him if these secretaries hadn't just been like well, oh no, this here's was, his entire calendar. This is Try him really one of those cases where you can say this was a different era. Yeah, no, for sure. When there, was, there wasn't the, the kind of weird sort of hush-hush on government agencies and the sort of need-to-know business going on. It was really very much that they wanted to have a good relationship with the press. But he, I don't even, oh yeah, no, he does. He does start all of his conversations by, by right, Woodward as a Washington he's, he's, Post. And that's something that uh, later on uh, Ben Bradley goes over with him. It's like, did you identify yourself clearly right. as to who you were? Because what Woodward is discovering is connections to uh, Howard Hunt, mm-hmm. who was an employee of the FBI, a former employee, and the special counsel was Charles Coulson. Um, at this point, Carl Bernstein becomes involved. Yeah. Uh, in a very indirect and strange way, he 
starts editing Woodward's work without permission. Yeah, he pulls it off of the printer. Right. And, well, not even editing it, just straight up rewriting it. Yeah, but he's also... This is Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. We should say. And they have a disagreement in the beginning because Woodward takes offense to this, and and Bernstein points out to him that he's a better writer. Yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to. Woodward's able to look at the paper and say, no, you wrote it better than I did. You actually... Yeah. Yeah, he says, look, you wait until the third paragraph to put the names that are important, that caught your attention, uh-huh. there's three paragraphs in. You need to put. You need well, to lead with that. That's the important piece. And what's great to see here is that you learn very quickly about their characters. Woodward is dogged, dogged but he is not necessarily as sensationalistic as Bernstein, who knows how to write a punchy, punchy uh, headline. Bernstein, however, is kind of a hothead and very impatient. Yeah, he wants to publish immediately right. all the things until he does it. It's very interesting. It's like if it's a small piece, he wants to go regardless. He's We, we know this. Mm-hmm. And he also is like, well, we know this thing to be true. Right. But we don't know this thing to be true. It's a thing that you could assume, right. but it's not backed up by anything. What you're looking at in the beginning of this film is two men who are small time. Bernstein can be sensationalistic because he has nothing really to report. Woodward is a guy who has all the information but can't quite put it together in a way that's going to grab anyone's attention. Right. And so between the two of them, however, they're able to sort of pool their forces and they're actually put together as a team. Nobody believes that there's a story here to start with. uh, I think a year into the the situation, there's a conversation and they're talking about you know, how many reporters are there in the country and five of them are writing about Watergate. Right. Like, it's a very small thing until it isn't. And you know when it isn't anymore, when Bob Woodward is like, we're ready to print, and Bernstein is like, no, we're not. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's well, like, oh, no. places suddenly. <laughs> but not so suddenly, because you understand that mm-hmm. Bernstein is also understanding the implications of everything they've discovered and now understands how big this is, and they can't afford to mess yeah, it up. When they but, reach constitutional crisis right. levels of cover-up. Because the thing is, but, so the whole thing, uh-huh. historically, if you don't know about Watergate and all of those things, is the break-in at the DNC is not a big deal. I mean, it's not a small thing. Right. They were tapping the phones at the DNC. Which is what the break-in was about, to, to clarify. Right. So, so these men, uh-huh. these these sad men with walkie-talkies, um, were breaking into the, the Democratic National Committee's offices to tap the phones. Uh, you find out that the, it's called creep, the committee right. to re-elect the president, that's really what it's called. It's really called creep. We're not politicizing it, <laughs> um, is behind payments to these men. Right. And attorneys are pay are paid to go in and get rid of the story and get and get these men off and make this go away. Not because the tapping of the DNC phones is a big deal, but because it's the latest in a string of activities right. that have been going on to undercut uh, the Democrats and their ability to bring a challenger against Nixon, right. 
who could win. Which is, again, where it began to feel very familiar, yeah. tampering with elections and tampering with the whole process of, of finding a nominee. Yeah. But um, back in, going back to the film, yeah. at this point, Woodward and Bernstein's stuff is being presented. They have a sympathetic handler. Yes. Um, who is trying to encourage and foster the story. They bring it up to Ben Bradley, who's played by Jason Robards. Yes. Who, you know his status in the newsroom because he keeps putting his feet on people's desks. He really does. I, I've never seen a man in a suit jacket also put his feet on someone else's desk. Like, that's just, he's really just like, I think that's this a demonstration. is my place. Right, of uh, his status. The fact and that he, he I believe, is the, he's the managing editor. Is that right? Of the, Executive of the paper? Editor. Executive editor. Mm-hmm. And he's able to criticize them and say that uh, the the work that the pair have done has lacked reliable sources. At which point, Bernstein loses his temper and is silenced with just a look from just Mr. Bradley. That's all it took. Although if Jason Robards looked at me like that, I would also shut up. Right. So <laughs> um, yeah. This leads... And uh, the whole thing, the whole problem with this is they have reliable sources. They don't have reliable sources that will say who they are on record. Who are willing to come forward in any way, right? It is, yes, it is all unnamed aides or, so ostensibly this is leakers. This is a series of leakers. They are currently in government positions and they cannot speak against their bosses and their bosses' bosses, et cetera, et cetera. So, um... Woodward is upset that he can't find a, a, a reliable source. He says that he met a person at a party once, a social gathering, and he's going to go and talk to them. And this is where we're introduced he to... He just knows it's a senior government official. Right. And he says at this point, I don't know titles. Like, I right. didn't get titles. This may not be true. But, we don't know, yes. Uh, he, we're introduced to another character, Deep Throat. Deep Throat. Who, it's Hal Holbrook, it's, a baby Hal Holbrook. Which is a really, I don't know who goes in the name Deep Throat because that's just bad. That's really bad. Which, for those of you who don't know, Deep Throat was the name of a porn film. Was it before this? Okay. So, um, yes. Yes. Uh, you want to know the plot of that porn film? I wish I didn't know it, but I do. Yeah, it's not worth going into, <laughs> however. It's um, a 70s right. porn film. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, he goes to meet uh, this character played by Hal Holbrook, who we're never told quite who he is. But uh, he meets in a, a parking garage, and this man is very insistent on a lot of sort of cloak and dagger, you know. He's made Woodward aware that he's watching him all the time because he wants him to place a flag out. In a yeah, he's like, you can't reach out to me directly. Flower pot. I um, will leave notes in the in page 20 of your New York Times delivery. Right. And if you need to talk to me, put a flag in the flower pot on your and you can only meet Window. him in the parking garage after changing cabs so he can't be followed. Right. And so there's a lot of cloak and dagger involved. And I think in the beginning, Woodward really feels that this is a lot of cloak and dagger. This is useless theatricality. Right. However, Deep Throat does tell him something really useful, which is follow the money, which is a phrase that's stuck with us since then. That's right, which money. apparently was specifically done in the movie. That mm-hmm. is not something that actually he said. Well, yes. Or mm-hmm. it like like in... In the reality of the situation, follow the money wasn't ever uttered. It wasn't in the book mm-hmm. uh, on which this is based, but it was put in this, and then, yeah, follow the money is a cultural sort of touchstone. Like a lot of the, the lines that we saw in the Godfather films. Just Keep your become, friends close right. and your enemies closer. 
it goes from there that there's a Bernstein is able to track the um, the corrupt activities of creep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, corruption. And to discover a check for $25,000 that's paid to Kenneth Dahlberg. All right, so it connects, now it has a direct connection between money taken in, that was supposed to be money taken in to re-elect the president. And um, and then it just seems like they're laundering it <laughs> at right. a certain point. Because, like, he had received a payment, but he wanted cash, so he gave the payment to creep so we could get the cash back like that was where that check came from and then that check was then used to pay somebody else yeah. for something and at this point you're discovering that both Woodward and Bernstein are making discoveries together and you really you're with them at this point in the story I feel you're following along with them and you want them to get uh, the information that's going to prove it because what they really need is reliable sources or somebody who's willing to talk right but but it's shot in a way that is it's not boring mm -hmm. but it is just them sitting on the phone. My favorite, oh, another part that I really loved was uh, Robert Redford writes CIA in his notes mm -hmm. in pencil. I'm like, this might be one that you write in pen. Like, <laughs> like, and there's a lot of doodles. Like, you see them doodling and writing. Like, the notes were very realistic. I've been on meetings where mm -hmm. I had to take notes, but if it, I was the only one there or if it was a phone thing, there's a lot of doodles on that page, too. Like, And I really liked those details. Well, it did. It made the entire film... It made you feel as if you were there. You know, even years and years on when you know yeah. what's going to happen. What they discover, the two men, eventually is that... And you'll pardon the language. Uh, is that the creep was paying a great deal of money to finance a rat-fucking campaign. Yes. And rat fucking is a term used when you discredit or plant information. They were literally paying for fake news right. to be printed fake about be... the Democrats. Right. In in that that were entering into the primaries. Once again, right. they were this was in an effort to reelect the president, they were trying to weaken anybody that the Democrats could put up against him. Right. Uh and yeah. And I don't know, like, I don't know backstories and things like that, but I've got to think that Nixon losing to JFK originally really had to put a burr in his butt. And he was like, <laughs> if I nice. run again, I'm not going to lose. So whatever you need to do to keep me from losing, do that. Right. Okay, so what happens from then is that Bradley is now much more interested in this story. There's more compelling sources. There's sources that are indicating... Because it, it, it's not just the Watergate break-in. This has no. been going on for a, a year then plus. It goes, so then the, the sense that he's getting is the Republican um, the committee to re-elect the president has actually been taking large sums of money, millions of dollars, yes. that have been going through these hands and being used for really nefarious purposes. Yeah. So it's not just about re-election. Now it's about defaming the other candidate, fabricating stories about him, and um, there was a safe that, right. I mean, at different points of the movie, this safe has various amounts of money. It starts with, they say, there were there was $360,000 mm -hmm. that was basically discretionary cash, which one of the women that was working there was like, I thought it was to take donors to dinner and stuff. And I'm like, right. $360,000? Was it also to buy them houses? And because... And then we find mm -hmm. out that it was not probably 360. It was probably along the order of 
a million dollars in cash. Now, this is Jane Alexander's used. character, who does a really great performance in this film of a person who is just terrified. And there's some good performances at this part um, because you're also seeing uh, Stephen Collins, who sadly is, you know... <laughs> well, m- many of these people are not going to be with us anymore because... No, 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 but sadly has been discredited as a person since then. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Okay, um, well, then we don't need to... Yeah, we don't need to go into that. But it was just sad because he was one of the actors in my childhood who did a lot of stuff I liked. And um, Meredith Baxter Bernie, as yes. a matter of fact, who appears briefly as his wife. Um, but oh, yeah, she was great. Right. We are an honest house. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> right. Yes, she ma'am. let you know who was in charge. Yeah, she um, made her husband quit because right. this shit is shady. Get out. And then you discover later that as much as you want to trust him, because earlier in the film, Jane Alexander talks about how she doesn't want anything to happen to him. Yeah. As a person, it's like there's a lot of faith in him to be a trustworthy character. It turns out he's not. No. Um, because... Y- you get into mm-hmm. a certain amount of muck before you get out, typically. Right. Uh, so, the White House issues a, um, a non-denial denial of the Post's story. Uh, when they come, you know, uh, when they go big They finally it. go to Prince mm-hmm. and then immediately... Oh, they go to Prince with... The fact that this person that we were just speaking of mm-hmm. uh, named these five men um, uh, under grand and grand jury testimony, right. and they've gotten him to. Th- this is the part where he was like, uh, "I'm never going to say this one person's name, Haldeman. I'm never going to say this person's name. I'm never going to say it." And Dustin Hoffman, or you know, Bernstein. Both, both of those things, um, is like okay. Well, you won't say it, but if I'm wrong, hang up before I get to ten. If I get to ten, I can run with the story. And he counts to ten, and the guy stays on the line. And he says, "So I'm right, or I so you know, so I'm confirmed. We're good. We're a go." And he's like, "I have no problem if you print a story that says that or you know, whatever it is, like the." The, the no yes or the yes no that they do um, to keep from having to say anything. And this is Hugh Sloan, right? This is the, yeah. Okay, the, the person who everyone believes to be an honest man and they don't want him to. And then the next day uh-huh. they say he didn't say that in grand jury testimony. He did not say his name. That right. Way. So... So this leads to another meeting with Deep Throat. And this is the meeting where I felt the movie takes a really... Where the first time that Woodward's taking very seriously what's going on because he is, at this point, really angry. And he's telling him, I I don't want any more puzzles. Right, because a lot of what Deep Throat says is, well, you're just going to have to figure that out. Right. Like, Woodward will ask him a question and he'll just say, well, you're going to have to figure that out. And I'm like, well, then what the fuck are we doing here? In the car park at 3 a.m.? I think he believes that he can just guide Woodward in the right direction and Woodward will figure it out. But the problem is he's not really, he doesn't have a clear idea of how much obstruction will be going on. Right. And so what winds up happening is that he comes out with it and mentions the FBI, the CIA are involved in covert operations inside the United States. They're being directed to do these things. Yeah. And it goes very, it goes as high as it can possibly go. And then we're aware of the fact that, and that's the scene where Redford walks out of the parking garage and starts running. Yeah. And he looks, and this is to his credit, because again, this is a period of time where Robert Redford is pulling away from these earlier parts where he's basically a pretty boy. 
He's, he's playing so this. beautiful. And where he's doing films like this and trying to establish himself as a different kind of actor. Yeah. Rue Baker, which is one of my favorite films also with Jane Alexander, about a prison warden uh, uh, reforming a, you know, a really rough prison. He was doing a lot of films like that in this period to try to distance himself from his earlier roles. I think this particular scene where he looks terrified and he breaks into a run because if he I realizes, hear that the CIA is doing covert operations in the U.S. Not only that, that your life is threatened as well, and that I and that I'm maybe gonna say that the CIA is doing covert. Right. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh, they 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 kill people. That's right. like what they exist for. And the fact that the CIA is operating illegally inside the United States, anyhow, at this not point. allowed. You and guys so are out of the nobody's U.S. Nobody's playing by the rules. Nope. And everyone is in danger. And if I heard the CIA and the FBI were working together, I'd be like, "Oh shit, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's not a thing that happens." Right. So he does a really good scene where he just looks frightened and he starts breaking into a sprint. There's also a very good scene right around here too, where. Um, after the White House wish issues these non-denial denials, everybody's like, well, are you going to fire them? Or what are you going to... We have to say something. We have to say something. And he just handwrites, Bradley. like, Bradley stands behind... The boys. The boys or yeah. something like that. That's the entirety of his statement. Like, we're not... These are our reporters. Right. We have published what they wrote. Mm-hmm. We stand behind what the fuck we wrote. Like, and I think there's something else that Bradley is savvy enough to know, uh, which is, and earlier in the film, there was a discussion whether or not to take this story away from these two young men and give it to somebody else. Yes, because that's when it right. was, he's only been here for 10 months and you've been saying you're going to fire Bernstein right. and you so still have it. What, um, the fact that Bradley, I think, realizes that if everyone is telling you, this is ridiculous, don't do this, we're denying, we're denying, we're denying, the same sense that Robert Redford's character got earlier in the film, or rather Woodward did, which is, why are people denying things before I tell them to deny it? That's the thing, yes, yes at the very beginning. denials before he mentions the Yeah, kind he's of like, they said they didn't do this or whatever, and they're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what's the big deal? He goes, I didn't even mention it. Right. I did not mention the Watergate. Right. Before they started saying that they don't know anything about There's the There's no Watergate. connection whatsoever. Like, well... I think Bradley's smart enough to know <laughs> that this is... Yeah, something must be going on because they're they're protesting too much. Yeah. And they're overdoing it. They're overcompensating for, if this is nothing, then why is everyone fighting so hard to keep it quiet? Yeah. Uh, and shortly afterward, um, Woodward and Bernstein actually go and speak to Bradley in the middle of the night. Yeah. And this is after uh, Nixon has taken the oath of office, and we see this in the background. The set for his second. He's right, been second reelected. Term. And Bradley encourages them to keep going. And the, the, the final scene in the film is just both men working away. Yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting montage because the final scene of the film is basically eight months. Right. And it's just them tapping, working on, uh, both of them just tapping it away right. on typewriters and headlines kind of overlaying as time goes by and between the of January and right. August when he, when Nixon is finally forced and that's to resign. The, the, the final thing that you, the final image on the screen is the, the teletype or telling you that Nixon's resigned. And it follows a succession of just Colson falling and Haldeman and the rest yeah. of them. And then finally it gets to Nixon. So, which is probably, you know, where you get the title, All the President's Men. Everyone winds up in the end coming under. But there's no big climax to the film. 
This mm-hmm. is just the first part of a story, but it's the part of the story where people teased out from all these denials that something was going wrong. There's just a lot of typing and people on the phone. Yeah, but... Uh, but that, it's like very compelling. Right, which is hard. For being typing, and because journalism is not that interesting, y'all. It's just not. There's a lot of things that might be kind of frustrating to a, a younger audience, I think. <laughs> And I think that uh, you covered that when you were looking at Woodward's uh, investigations, realizing how much this could just be done. A lot of this online. would be Googled. Right. A um, lot of this would be At one point, they're looking that you through could phone books. Sort. They're you know, trying to find the names. They get a list of people contributing to Creep, and they go through every last one yeah. on foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then some of the people, they get the wrong... like. They go to that woman's house and she's like, oh, I've been dying to talk to somebody about this because I've been a Republican my whole life, but this goes beyond that. And then you find out, and then she starts talking about some like weird conspiracy stuff and they're like, Ms. So-and-so? And And she's like, yeah. And they're like, you know, Jeanette's. And she's like, Colleen. (laughs) That's just the wrong woman. There is a lot of humor to the film, but in unexpected places. And there's also a lot of... um, it just, it works. It works in scenes where you wind up really being with these guys when they're trying to get Ben Bradley's support on any level. And then when he finally sends that note to his guys, we're going to support the boys, to paraphrase, it really means something because you're like, yeah. thank God, finally someone's listening to them. Yeah. And you wonder what the world had been like if this had never come to light, if this one reporter hadn't found these inconsistencies and gotten so... and then realized that they were inconsistencies and decided to do something about it. That's what reporters are for. You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of person that... And the same kind of issues that are being faced by journalists now working with an administration that's not kind to the press. Right. Or makes accusations at the press. The same sort of things happened then, but there was more, it seemed, in this uh, time when the story's taking place. There was more of a respect for what the journalists did. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And more of a trust that they were telling but the But I truth. also think that that's also, a, this was also a time when to be a journalist, you probably trained as a journalist. Right. Whereas now, with the internet, if I have a blog, I can call myself a journalist. I don't need to understand codes of ethics. I don't need to understand... You know, you know, well, or, we or here too. We're living in a very different age in yes. which people are celebrities, news celebrities. There are people who are YouTube celebrities who wind up broadcasting. Yeah, I, I understand that this might you know, strike strike a sour note with some people, but the fact that we can have stand-up comedians who suddenly become Bill you can have Maher. someone like Bill Maher, who basically I remember him was not a funny stand-up comedian either. I'm going to get on the back of. Politically incorrect right. with Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu, and their motto of their podcast is "fuck Bill Maher." Right. Yeah, he's a fucking racist asshole. Well, I mean, I don't like <laughs> and him for Islamophobe a and number of reasons. He he has a a very negative view of organized religion, and but at the same time, uh, comics can do great news things. No, see John see, Stewart. Yes, and that that's that's but right. also John Stewart. Always said he was making a comedy show. Right. He co- whenever somebody called him on not doing the news right, right, he was like, "My show's on after fucking swearing puppets. Like right. I'm not making a news show. My right. show's on Comedy Central." 
it's a comedy show. Just because he was doing news better than news outlets, that mm-hmm. says something about news outlets, not about him. Bill Markin believes himself to be a journalist, and he is not one, also not a journalist. What's that do? Piers Morgan. Fuck that guy. Well, I'm, there's, but see, that's kind of what I'm talking about. We've entered into this sort of world where... Tommy I'm, Lauren, also not I'm a journalist. Uh, not a journalist, but also not a reasonable human being. Wow. I, I, I can't believe we've come to an age now where there's not really the same kind of, as you said, education. There's not an edu- and and I actually don't think that you need to go to journalism school to be a journalist. I'm not saying that, but I do kind of think that there should be some sort of oath well, like doctors have to take standards and guidelines. Standards and guidelines about and what you're saying, rules, right? What off the record means? What right? If you are going to write something as a fact, you should know what a fact, what the definition you of have a to have fact rules is, in order to know when you violated them. You have to understand the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. Mm-hmm. That's a real legit no, I, thing. Yeah. So, and and Did I don't require? feel like that's required right. right now, which makes the media an easier target because there are, of course, outlets that are adhering to. Well, very high quality <laughs> journalism, is, why, and then there are outlets right. who do not do there that. There are times where I'm listening to, and some of the journalists, and I have to give them credit on NPR, who are trying so hard to remain objective, and you can just hear it in their voices, like, "Oh my God, yeah. what just happened?" <laughs> and you, because we're living in an age where it's very much like Nixon, where you have just, and the, the parallels are. Are amazing, uh, upsetting. 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 You have this really paranoid, self-destructive person who just can't take any personal criticism. Yeah, is suspicious and of everyone. It's um, turned into uh, if you call someone out for mm-hmm. blatantly stating a falsehood as right. truth, you're partisan. Hey, no, you're not. Right. No, you're not. That's not partisan. Right. Objective truth is objective truth. It doesn't have a liberal or conservative slant. Just because conservatives don't necessarily like the objective truth, that doesn't make it anti-conservative. Yeah, and I feel it that just makes it. What was the thing that Al Gore? An, an inconvenient <laughs> truth. And I feel that the this film reflects a lot of what we're experiencing right now. Um, and it also makes heroes of people who worked very and put their lives at risk. Yeah. In order to get at something, so that we understood that, in the end, this is not who we are as a country. Right. Let's hope not. Well, it wasn't for them then. I I don't know about now. I, I think we're gonna. I, well, we'll see. We'll see. No, I, I, or we won't, because we'll all die. One of the two. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't understand playing nuclear brinksmanship. I don't understand yeah. uh, the kind of the antagonizing people who used to be allies. I don't understand any of this. And this is what, no. as much as we complain about the behavior of politicians, at least they're professionals. And yeah, it's. Yes, it, and once again, right. you might not like the way politicians do things, mm-hmm. but they do things in a specific way. The current administration do, right. does not follow well, norms. And there's also something else, again, being very political and growing up in that generation, 
As much as I disliked a great deal of what Ronald Reagan did, at least he actually believed in what he was doing. Right. Which is yes. the opposite of having a person who doesn't have any convictions about no. anything except What's going to make me look good today? Right. I'm going to do that. And whatever that opinion is, that public opinion poll, he's going to run with it. And so as much as I disliked what the Bushes did or I disliked what Reagan did, at least they had the virtue of really honestly believing they were believing doing the right thing. Believing that they were doing the right thing. Right. Or at least being consistent in the reasoning right. behind what they were doing, even if what they were doing was mm -hmm. shitty and horrible. Right. There's and no consistency or reasoning in our current situation. No, it's just really erratic and Which is very a little bit terrifying. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the... There's a lot of trivia on mm -hmm. this movie. Yeah that I think is really interesting. So I want to go okay, over sure, some yeah. of that. I don't want to get too political. Hey, guys, we live in California and are liberals, both of us. Also, yeah. one of us is a person of color and one of us is a woman and neither of us votes against our, right. our, better, best, our, interest. our own best interests. However, I will bring up, so. absolutely, one of us is also very religious. Oh, yes. and We have a Christian in the mix. Who grew up in a very conservative environment and is a different kind of... Christian now because he's the kind of Christian that thinks Christ would not be a Republican. <laughs> I think the kind of well, Christ wouldn't be either. But the, the point well, is, no, I know that's why I specifically like, said it the way that I said. I don't think he'd be a Democrat. Christianity is is never to support any kind of conservatism. Jesus was constantly tearing that down. Um, but you know, again, that's that's a different podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but we are we do come from things from a right. I try to be as open minded as possible. And also the fact that we both grew up uh, poor, yeah, more or less. So poor I think is fair. That, that that's a, a thing that is a uh, something that makes you kind of inclined liberal because I think yeah, a right. if I have money, I don't mind my taxes going to help people that don't have money. Right. And when I didn't have money, those things very much kept me alive. Right. So I am appreciative of them and willing to give back when I can. I I am not a person, I don't think, who if I got a lot of money would be like, it's all mine. Mm. I'm I mean, right now I'm not super excited to be giving to the government because they want to build a wall with my money. <laughs> and I'm not really on board for that. But if you want to fix some roads and give some kids some health care and maybe provide some coverage for those kids, those DACA kids. Uh, I or actually please just use my money for that. good on the promise that we already just made them. That's just we we already be did that. Be a decent human being, could you? Would you? All right, we'll get off the politics. Sorry, guys. So this uh, movie would only be financed by Warner Brothers if Robert Redford started it. He's a producer, but he thought uh, I'm my, just my very presence in this is going to tip it very much toward Woodward being the quote-unquote star. Mm -hmm. So he sought out Dustin Hoffman to play the other character because he wanted he plays somebody... He well off of tall, blonde, good-looking men. Well, he wanted somebody <laughs> as as, right. as high a stature as he was. Right. And he that is the regard with which he held Dustin Hoffman. And I think that's probably right. I mean, mm -hmm. this is after Midnight Cowboy, right? Dustin Hoffman's an actor's actor. And if you really want to prove yourself... Not as an a, actress's actor, it turns no, out. No, not so much. But an actor's actor. Wah, wah. And so <laughs> you, you, he, if you really wanted to be taken seriously, this is the opportunity and this is the person to do this with. Yeah. And I think that that's 
smart of him. And also, I wonder if he'd met Woodward and Bernstein at that point and realized mm. that they kind of both need... Because they play, they really strengthen the other one's weaknesses, right. um, which I think is why they continue to work together You know, after this and case. There's a lovely thing that you'll notice near the beginning of the film, through about the middle. They're still very competitive with each other. And so they will talk over each other all the time. They do. That's another, um, that's why you started the way that I did, um, or that we did this time, was um, to prepare. They memorized, the two lead actors memorized the other one's lines so that they could both interrupt each other in character, which threw, like, everybody else was like, what's happening? And But it made it a more... It made it seem like they were working as right. closely and for as long as they were. Because even if they weren't working together before the start of the movie, for a year, right, mm-hmm. this is their whole life right. um, is working with each other. And it's, that was another, there's another piece that I enjoyed. It, I like watching things pre-cell phone, right. especially things where you're like, oh, if they just had a cell phone, this whole movie wouldn't even be a thing. There's a heist movie by um, Kubrick where if those people had phones, the movie wouldn't even be the movie because <laughs> all they would have to do is call each other and be like, I'm running three minutes late. <laughs> There's a phone call where Bernstein's out on the road. Mm-hmm. And so he calls Woodward back and he's like, I got this and this and this. I'm I'm trying to figure out where this thing is. And then he calls back like, three hours later, maybe, and Woodward's figured it out and cracked it. But Bernstein's been working at it, but he's on the road, and so his, you know, his resources are less than what Woodward's got going on. And uh, he's like, oh, I think I know this thing. And Woodward's like, oh, no, I've got it. I've already figured it out. (laughs) I'm like, how long did poor Bernstein bang his head against the things and not get anywhere. But he, like I said, he was on the road, so I think he was calling from pay phones. It wasn't even like he could be reached to say, right. oh, I've got this, don't worry Oh, I remember it. that world. It was it was horrible. I mean, people just didn't show up. You didn't know if they were dead. It was, it was a very strange pre-cell phone world. There's uh, one scene where Robert Redford's on the phone, and it's a continuous six-minute single take with a camera tracking. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, Redford picks up his lines and he calls the phone caller by the wrong name. They left it in. It oh, just right. seems like he was, he stays in character. Uh-huh. So he doesn't, he does what Dustin Hoffman did in Midnight right. Cowboy. Instead of yelling, we're filming a movie here. Right. We, <laughs> I'm just going to keep rolling with it. And I bet that that would happen all of the time. Yeah. Look at all the names in his notes. There's so much to remember in this film. And I, yeah, I think that, it must have been exhausting. The process of shooting this movie must have been exhausting, I think, because there's so much to do. There's so much dialogue. There's so much spontaneity in these interactions, Yeah. too. You really feel, as I said, that it's sort of crackling, like you're there and you're in the mm-hmm. middle of it. Apparently, the Jack Warden character, the mm-hmm. who was the editor right above Woodward and Birds, and I uh-huh. guess the um, they were Metro? Because they were Washington, it's the Washington Post, mm-hmm. and they were Metro reporters, so they right. were writing about the happenings in the city, so, not national. They mm-hmm. weren't on the national desk, right? Because that gets uh, Bradley sorts those out. Yeah, what goes national, what goes right, or, or rather portions out what goes on the front page. So I guess in real life, mm-hmm. uh, Harry Rosenfeld, who's the character, that editor, mm-hmm. 
they had to tone down the dialogue that was originally written for him because apparently he's so smart and funny mm -hmm. that it reads fake. Like it would read, like nobody would believe right. that he was that quick. Right. Um, which I think is really an interesting. Dumb him down a little bit. Yeah. Like. Now, just for those of you who are old enough to know who some of these people are. Nobody. Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Hal Holbrook, Jason Robards, Jane Alexander, Stephen Collins, Ned Beatty, Meredith Ned Beatty. Baxter, yes. Lindsay Krause, F. Oh, Murray pre Bernie Abraham. Meredith Baxter? Yeah, Meredith Baxter. I know her as Meredith Heard. Baxter Bernie. Uh, it's Polly Holiday. All of these, I mean, so many of them are just went on to these huge careers. And you're, you're looking at them, and it's one of those cases where, especially if you remember the 70s and 80s, a lot of actors coming out of here, even the bit parts, I mean, um, oh, yeah. just went places, you know. And I, I found it funny because I completely forgot that Lindsay Krause was in this film. And I don't even believe that she's credited as Lindsay Krause. I think it's something else. And I'm explaining to Emily, no, no, she married David Mamet. They founded the Steppenwolf Theater. They Now, okay, you didn't say right. either of those things, actually, when you were describing who she was. Well, right, I was trying to remember <laughs> a part that she might those, see her. I would have known uh, and her. And she did uh, some films with her husband, House of Cards, which is a great film with Joe Mantegna and William H. Macy about con artists. Um, I was surprised that we didn't see Catherine Graham in this film. Had she not? No, she was definitely because they said something very unflattering about her. I don't remember. It's a threat. They yeah. were like, if if you guys go through with this, something about her right. special lady area. <laughs> I think they might have used the c word. Um, oh, this movie originally rated R because of all the fucks. Right now, PG. You know how many fucks are in it? All of them. <laughs> They were like a historical significance, and I don't think the fuck the fucks are um, used toward people. Mm -hmm. I think they're just they're just incidental. If I had a a drinking game, okay, for this movie is how many times someone says Jesus or Jesus Christ. There's that's a lot of that constant in the film, including Bernstein, who was Jewish. You know, that's which makes it even funnier. But there's a lot of uh, well, mostly it's just the the constant surprise at just how big this story was that nobody saw coming. Nobody was expecting it to become this this thing. Five Oscar winners are in this movie, and five Oscar nominees. So Hoffman, Redford, Jason Robards, Martin Balsam, and F. Murray Abraham who was, like I said, in one scene, he was in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I'm going to assume he was the one police officer that you hear talk. Mm -hmm. They're all dressed like they've been fishing. They must have been undercover or something. But they had, like, weird floppy hats and, uh, like, Hawaiian shirts on. Mm -hmm. And they pick up the call, and they're like, are you sure you want us to go? Because there this other car is closer, and also they're in uniform. And the dispatch person was like, they're getting gas, you guys go. <laughs> like, which is so random. And then five Oscar nominees, Jack Warden, Hal Holbrook, Ned Beatty, Lindsay Krauss, and Jane Alexander. How has Hal Holbrook, or Ned Beatty for that matter, never won an Oscar? How is that possible? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's just like when you look at the body of work that they did, it seems ridiculous that they didn't, you know, there's some people who just got bypassed and you're thinking, why on earth, you know? So I found out sad news about our friend from, was that, was, uh, 
chosen to play himself, uh-huh. Frank Wills. So apparently after the break-in, like a couple of days later, he got fired for no reason was given. And then he was out of work until he got the one day of work on this. Mm-hmm. And then he was out of work. Like, he never got a full-time job again. Well, that's a pity. Until he died in 2000 at the age of 52. So he was young when this happened. So you think he was just sort of black or I don't know. Huh. From everything? I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's, that's weird. That's sad. Catherine Graham isn't in the film, but I guess there was a version where she might have been. Mm-hmm. So Geraldine Page refused the role. Geraldine Page, wow. And then Lauren Bacall and Patricia Neal were also considered for Catherine Graham, but once again, she's not in the final cut of the film. Wow. Not to say that there aren't important women characters in this movie, but it wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. They don't talk to each other. They only talk to them. They don't talk to each other, but also this film is not at all about, it's not about really anything other than Catching where this all yeah, and up. there aren't women in so, the well. There is a woman in the newsroom who, unfortunately, has to kind of and that's Lindsay Krauss use a date to right. get information, which wasn't which was upsetting, which is also another great. example of where Bernstein was pushing it and Woodward was pulling back. So this movie feels a lot like a lot like Spotlight, and mm-hmm. I should probably really say Spotlight <laughs> right. feels a lot like this movie. And Spotlight is the I think twenty sixteen. 2015 Best Picture, um, which uh, is also very heavily newsroom-based, and it's the story of the Boston Globe breaking the um, Catholic priest's cover-up pedophile scandal. There's a lot of words in there. That was awkwardly phrased. Well, because I don't really know how to phrase it, Um, because it's not like Watergate. Easy. Mm-hmm. Also, Watergate's called Watergate because the hotel and complex were called Watergate. Mm-hmm. Not because they put gate at the end of water and got the name of a scandal. So, mm-hmm. can we stop doing this? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so aggravating. Every time I see something gate, I'm like, that's not a thing. Like, that's not how that works. Spotlight did win Best Picture. This one did not win Best Picture, but um, very similar. Um, another movie that feels a little bit like this is Zodiac from the early 2000s, which ostensibly is about a serial killer, but is really about reporters. Right. <laughs> that's who it's really about. And that's wh- I think a lot of people didn't like the movie because they were expecting a serial killer movie, and it is a journalism they movie. They also probably expected a resolution, and there is none. Oh, yeah, no. And there isn't. And there, any... because it's a real-life story, and they right. decided not to just name somebody, even though nobody's been named. There's a very tantalizing hint at the end that they did find who did it, but there's no actual follow-through yeah. or arrest or any of the things that give you a sense of satisfaction. You're just left with this uneasy feeling. Serial, season three. Right. Find the Zodiac killer, Sarah. Come on, what are you doing? What is she doing? What is Serial Season 3? Any final thoughts on All the President's Men? Um, Only that I really appreciated it. Uh, Again, out of the context of modern times, I probably appreciate it even more. Um, I wish that there there was the same sort of feeling towards the press where you could trust them and that there wasn't the sort of animosity there was towards the press that there is now. And so that we could actually hear voices that were talking about or warning us about the kind of things that are going on. I think that if you are a savvy media 
consumer, uh-huh. which is difficult. You can't just it's read so a headline and know right. a thing. But I think it's possible. There are still journalists doing good work. But there are also journalists who, with questionable integrity. Mm-hmm. And that there have always been journalists with questionable integrity. What, there was a period of time when you never you would look at a, a, a newscaster like Walter Cronkite, and he was so much the voice of authority that you just trusted what he 90% said. Ninety percent of that was actually his voice. <laughs> I'm serious. I remember that when I was a kid, I had a great big book of dinosaurs and there was a record that went along with it that was done the record was recorded by walter cronkite and he had the authoritative voice on dinosaurs <laughs> he knows everything yeah <laughs> yeah there isn't well it's also it uh, it comes from many things but also the the splintering of right that's true too. sources so we can silo ourselves into only hearing who you want to who you want to and, yeah, n- not everybody turns into the evening news on X channel because right. there are 45 of those all at the same time, all saying different things. Right. Yeah. It used to be the job of newspapers. What's that? <laughs> I'm joking. I know what a newspaper is. Messy. You got ink on your fingers. So plebeian. <laughs> Terrible. I'm going to hell. <laughs> Well, with that, do you have any recommendations this week? It's a film from 2015 called The Gift, and it's uh, directed by Joel Edgerton, who's also one of the stars. And He's an actor that you've probably seen everywhere. He's been in, in last all years. of the things. In Warrior, in Zero Dark Thirty, in The Great Gatsby, in Exodus, in Black Mass, in Loving, in Bright. He's just he's in Bright. everywhere. He's the orc. Right, he's an orc. So he has been everywhere in the last few years. He's just all over the place. And he's, this is a directorial debut. He plays, and there's really not much I can say about this film without giving something away. Yeah, you don't want to give it too much of it away. I don't want to give any it of it away. It stars him mm-hmm. and Jason Bateman and is Rebecca her name Rebecca Hall. Hall? Yes. Who's consistently excellent in mm-hmm. everything I've seen right. her in. It starts out. As one kind of film, and then it becomes another kind of film, and then it becomes better than it deserves to be, because you could sit here watching it from the trailers and guess that you're going to be watching a thriller, like, oh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's the something. way that they portrayed it, is, and, is very much like that, or Single White Female, or something right. like that. And then it becomes this other kind of film, which is really a meditation on emotional violence more than physical violence, and on bullying. And as such, Go into it with the uh, prepared for the fact that you're going to. It's a thinking movie, mm-hmm. and the performances are very, very good. And so, if it has elements of a thriller, it's not leading up to a thriller with a yeah. There are climax. jump scares. That's not what right. this movie is. Um, and so, I would. It's a great movie to think about to talk about afterward. Yeah, because it it's also leaves a you. Experience. It leaves you with a. But what really happened, mm-hmm. like, it, it could be multiple things. It could be really horrible, or it could just be horrible for one person, or it could be horrible for... Yeah, it's, it's, 
it, it really does leave it on a, and I'm warning you about that, because I know there's some people who don't like ambiguity in movies. Yeah. And, so and I'd just like to know if it's going to be jump scary. Right. E -e -e -e. And so if, if ambiguity is something that you're uncomfortable with, then this is not the movie for you. Yeah, no, but, but other than that, if you... Drama, I it's would say. It's a drama. It's a drama with very good performances of it. Right. From, you know, people who consistently do good work. Right. I mean, and all of them. You would think, because it's a Blumhouse film. Oh, that's the other thing. You Blumhouse really, really is doing the thing. Blumhouse really, at A24 you do are think two, that two studios where I'm like, yeah, just watch everything. When you see their in. credit, you think it's going to be a horror film. That's true. Um, and that's why I'm sort Which of... Which is a little unfair because they don't solely do horror no, films. They don't. They do primarily do horror. They do martial arts movies apparently now. So um, they do anything you can make in five with five million dollars. Right. Jason Blum will give you five million dollars. He is not going to give you five million and one dollars. Right. So don't bother asking. But he will give you five million dollars to make a movie. And this was a good choice because you had some first-rate performances by some first-rate actor, actors. And, and well, actors. and I'm sure it didn't take very much to make because I mean. The actors were probably paid fine, a fine amount of money, but not a huge amount of money. And most of it takes place in one in the house that they have bought. Which but yeah, and there's there's elements of it that are creepy. I dislike the term psychological horror. People make the mistake of psychological horror are oh, films are things that are more realistic about the tension between two people. Given that, notes on a scandal is a psychological horror film. I've never heard the phrase psychological yeah, horror. That was a differentiation. If it doesn't have a vampire bat or a monster, but then it's psychological horror. I, I don't I've only ever heard thriller. That's what I'm right. saying. And that seems closer to me because horror feels to me like there has to be some element of yuck. Well, the film a certainly has a bleeding no, thing no, or see, a, that, again, that, that No, 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 like physical yuck. The, but that cuts in this film doesn't really have that. Thriller. Not horror. That's and what I'm saying. <laughs> I know, but it's psychological horror is a term, okay. <laughs> and that's what I'm discussing. So, uh, yeah, so this film, it follows along that line, but at the same time... Jacob's Ladder. Right. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby, a perfect example. Nope, all of these say psychological thriller. Oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think that it's gotten taken over by suspicion, distrust, self-doubt, and paranoia. Sounds like a Saturday night. It, <laughs> oh, so what would you recommend? I don't remember. Oh, Valerian. Oh, okay, Valerian. guys. So about a month and a half ago, month ago, I went away for the weekend. And during that time, I spent much of that weekend, while I was relaxing and trying to sleep, watching Valerian and the city of a thousand planets. And I couldn't make it through because I kept falling asleep. But that's not the movie's fault. That's my fault. Uh, I kept trying to watch it at 3 o'clock in the morning. I should have just been going to sleep. This is a film that came out last year. It's a Luc Besson film based on a series of uh, comics. French comics. Or graphic novels, I guess I should say. And it's a movie that cost a great deal of money. And so there was a big, it's going to flop thing. It's going to be terrible thing. Here's the thing about this movie, guys. It's very enjoyable. Now, here are some common things that you will hear, and they are not untrue. Those two lead characters 
have no chemistry whatsoever, and their whole relationship is weird and doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, that's fine. Forget about it. Dane DeHaan is one of the least charismatic human beings that's ever existed. I don't know if that's true. That seems a little harsh, but he's wooden. He's not very interesting. There are tons of cool-ass aliens in this movie, and I don't care about the humans. It's like asking who starred in Alien vs. Predator. It doesn't matter. They're all going to die anyways. And Cara Delevingne is in this. She's a pretty wooden, too, but I kind of think that they were being maybe directed that way. The movie should just be called Valerian and Laureline because they're both important. And I would say she might be more important than he is, but his is the name that's in the title, so that sucks a little. Now, all of that stuff notwithstanding, there are cool-ass aliens in this movie. The opening is very awesome. There's this sort of chain of people coming up to the space station and it's people and it's different nations adding their piece to the space station different nations and then aliens the first one comes and it's all these different life forms coming and adding themselves to the space station which then gets too big for earth it's like the iss it's in our orbit but then it gets too big and it's going to start like being a problem with tides and shit. So we push it out into space. So, and then the rest of the movie is these space spies and their adventures. It's super fun. It's probably a half an hour longer than it should be because I think I even fell asleep when we were watching it. You liked it? Yes, but I'm old. And what I appreciated about the film was, and this is... Uh, all right. <laughs> I'm trying to find a polite way to do this. I don't have a great deal of fondness for the Star Wars movies. Star Wars movies, right. Because I find them horribly derivative of things that came before. Gotcha. And one of my issues with, and again, this is a film I really like, John Carter. Yeah. Was because I read the books growing up. Yeah. And re- when the film, uh, a film version finally got made, there were so many people complaining it was derivative of Star Wars, when in fact... Star Wars was hundred years old, yeah. yeah. And George Lucas strip mined this film, mm-hmm. and just like a lot of modern science fiction, cinematic science fiction is basically ripping pages out of. This is why when I like said this. Spotlight is, or right. this was a lot like Spotlight. That's not true. Right. Spotlight was a lot like this. Um, but uh, and that's something John Brosnan in his book on science fiction films, Future Tense, covered, which is that science fiction filmmakers often treat written science fiction is like a junkyard where they can get pieces and stick them together and right. make their well, own stuff. Well, yeah, because right. so this it's was, easy and the work's been done. Right, and this sort of film is is based on material that was very influential in Europe right? and actually has a following here. So a lot of the elements that people were going to find derivative are things that have actually been reinterpreted by a number of people in the time since, but actually, including Luc Besson as well. But mm-hmm. I thought it was very enjoyable. And it was very Super enjoyable. Super watchable. Right. Like I said, it's probably a half an hour longer than it. It's very long. Half an mm-hmm. hour longer than it needs to be. But the set pieces are all in- very interesting. Oh, there's some the really... The visuals right. are stunning. Luke Besson is really good at handling action. Mm-hmm. And he's handling action on different scales, whether it's Jet Li kind of action or whether it's spaceships crashing in space kind of there action. There is a scene where Valerian's running through the... St- ship and it flips over into being a a situation where I'm like, I don't think he's clearing these rooms in five steps, Mm -hmm. but I understand why we're doing that because Mm -hmm. 
nobody wants to watch him run for 15 right. minutes. Like, this movie's long and enough. Something I'll bring up for people who like, we have a really different attitude in the States with science fiction. Mm-hmm. I found, well, the things I found interesting about this film was how it's addressing the subject of colonialism yep. in the context of science fiction. Yep. And whether or not a greater uh, government has the right to go to what they call a primitive society. And that's the crux of this movie. There's actually well, something that's trying to Well, of course, we think that, we, that right. that's fine because that's what we done did. Right, but this is coming from a, a perspective. And there's a lot of almost Afrofuturism at points in this film with this sort of Moroccan uh, open market. Yeah. And there's a lot of elements of that too. Some of the, I pointed out to Amity, the, the alien race in this film that's the center of all the controversy in the The plot, pearls. Right, are um, where what looks like Kikuyu headdresses. Yeah. Uh, African headdresses and um, and costumes. So there's a lot of... Despite uh, being so white. Well, not white. <laughs> no, I know. They're very... They're, no, they're, they're literally blue. white. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're like pearlescent white. Okay. I, I thought they were blue. Yeah. Color blindness. It's a bit... So anyhow. You might be right. They might be blue. I'll, um, I'll double check. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. They're so shiny and beautiful. I really... I enjoyed the film and I, 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 I don't need... At this point, I don't need the characters because, again, it's all what you favor. None of the characters in Star Wars is, is interesting. No, it's true. Or, uh, that's interesting, the, that's why it didn't bother me. None of them is really original. Original. At yes. all. I mean, if you'd read enough science fiction, especially from the 50s and 60s, you've met all these characters a dozen times before. Right. They are... One of some of the older fans... Not stereotypes, but... Right. Um, Archetypes. Yes, that. Right. Han Solo, start reading the Northwest Smith stories by C.L. Moore. That's the same character. And oh, like, and multiple right. other things. No, right, of course. exactly. So... Yeah. And that's why I, I didn't mind sort of the woodenness of these characters. Mm-hmm. That there is this thing, this ongoing thing, where he keeps proposing to her, and I'm like... Y'all don't even seem to like each other. I don't understand what like this him. is. I, he, but he doesn't seem to really give a fuck about anything. I don't. Yeah. It's very. It's a. It's strange. But that's fine. That might mm-hmm. be sort of a thing from the books right. that is like a French cultural thing mm-hmm. that it just doesn't translate. Doesn't translate. And you're going to run into a lot of. Like I said, European cultural tropes in right. this film. Right, and that but, might be just my cultural right. stupidity not understanding but these things. It's an enjoyable film. For sure. The, visually, it's beautiful at times. It's, it's pretty funny. Like, there right. are funny bits Rihanna to it. Is, Rihanna is, is great in it. Right? She plays a character named Bubble. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, it just turned out to be surprising and, and fun. And I don't understand... It's, if I'd seen yeah. it in the theater and paid full price, I would have been like, fuck yeah! Well, see, and that was two and a half hours of a beautiful... Mm-hmm. Right, and it must have been interesting to see on a big screen just sort of surrounded with all these images. Yeah. Anyways, that brings us to the end of this weird episode. Oh, no it doesn't. What are we going to watch next week? I thought we agreed on Taxi Driver. You never mentioned it, oh, we so mentioned we didn't it in the agree. Last podcast. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that eventually we were doing it. We do probably, we have Taxi yes, Driver? We then we're going to do it. That's why. Was it on television? Do you have record it? Uh, oh, we've got uh, it on DVD. DVD. All right. Just oh, this that. one, uh-huh. just so you guys know, um, All the President's Men, we actually rented on Amazon Prime. It right. was not available on a streaming service. And the streaming services that we have are 
Legion. <laughs> we have uh, almost all of them. To warn the audience who wants to see Taxi Driver Ooh, ahead of us. It's going to be super violent, right? It's incredibly violent. At, uh, near the end of the film, is really violent, and it is and more violent than The Godfather. Here's what I know about Taxi Driver. You, you looking, looking at me? me? <laughs> okay, but just <laughs> There's warning, nobody else here, so you must be looking at me. There's some things that will make you... It's like very much like Midnight Cowboy. In uh-huh. that there are things that are going to make you really uncomfortable. Jodie Foster plays a child prostitute. That's right, yes. Um, and there's a scene where Sybil Shepherd is sitting watching a porn movie, not strictly by her will either. It's very strange. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. I wasn't weirded out by the first part of that, but the second part of it made me sad. Well, All right. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, watch it with us. Well worth watching. Very Does much it win so. an Academy Award? No, it's nominated, but mm. I don't think it wins. I don't think they would have at that time. Alrighty, so thank you for listening. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, you can find us on all the social medias. You can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at latecomerspod. You can find us on Facebook. You can look up the Latecomers Podcast. Uh, we have a group and a Facebook page. Come find us. They're not very active yet. Make it active. Say a thing. We'll respond. I will be guesting on a podcast next week, but I will say more about it later. Uh, it's a Futurama podcast, guys. I just watched the episode. So you'll talk more about it in the future. I will. Yes, exactly. Lemuel's book is at uh, Amazon, Sealing Night. That's S-E-E-L-I-N-G. Night, not Knigget. All right. Remember, better late than never. You never do it with me, son. You, you never. Okay, why don't we try it again? Give me some warning that it's coming this time. Okay. Remember. <laughs> I just figure when I say remember, you'll know okay, the fuck right, I'm going to say. All right. <laughs> all right, go ahead. You say it. <laughs> I'm editing them together. I'm done with this. <laughs> remember, better late than never. Yes, you all have to say it better. Better late than never. We should overlap. <laughs> 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 <laughs>